Make him feel at home. Hey, man. Top bunk's mine, bottom bunk's yours. What you in for, anyway, man? Oh, hey, inmate. 8675309. I have a name, man. Of course you do. So do I. Dr. Stephen Greer. And you know something? The whole reason I'm in here is because of a misunderstanding. I tried to explain to a judge that um, when I brought people to a national park and told them to look up at the sky and flashlights at airplanes because the um, airplanes was um, transmogrified spaceships that was camouflaging themselves and they paid me money for this but it was on um, federal property the judge thought that was a scam but I told the judge, Judge, I says, it ain't no scam. In fact, this court is a scam. You don't have any jurisdiction over me. No one can judge me but me and my creator. The Galactic Federation of Light and or Alfred Lamont Weber. And the judge looked at me and he says, Dr. Greer, you're out of line. And you're going on vacation, son. And so here I am. Where's my flip-flop? Wow, man. I'm just here for tax evasion. Oops. Why are you doing that? Oopsie. Stop dropping the soap, man. I made an oopsie doodle. You're not supposed to drop. We're not even in the shower. Excuse me, let me just get this. Hey, how are you doing that with the music, man? What music? Jeff Ritzman! Ha ha ha! <laughs> How are you? I'm good, and you? I'm doing well. It's uh, funny to be talking to you because you're you're really nowhere to be found in this episode. That's right. My son is graduating high school, and uh, and I was at the ceremony. So, uh, yeah, I know where the priorities are. <laughs> yeah, you and your family. Yeah. God. But you did listen to it, yes, or parts of it, or something? Uh, yeah, I, I I got through a good bit of it, but um, you <laughs> more, have, more than the listeners will. Uh, <laughs> what are um, you saying? <laughs> no, 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 oh. not not more than the listeners will. I'm sure the listeners will have been much more astute in listening than I have. But uh, but you can lead me through it and uh, and go over the finer points of the discussion after the interview. All right, we'll do that. But first, I had a Jeff Ritzman like experience by way of George Hansen last week. Really? Yeah. So last Friday. Uh, I have this part-time job, which is grueling for me because it's many hours on my feet. Uh, Friday was my first 13-hour shift. Well, can I also say it's also grueling because it's a job. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yes, I find that to be true. <laughs> um, 
in any event, so it's a job, which I haven't had in years, and uh, it's on my feet, which I haven't been in even more years. And it's at a store, and as I'm uh, checking out the shelf, or whatever, stocking the shelf, whatever the hell I'm doing, I see this uh, this little old lady in a giant white, like, sun hat, you know, one of those annoying sun hats that are, like, you know, take up the sidewalk. Oh, yeah. Uh, sort of waddle her way into the back room. The back room is a small back room. There's only one way in and one way out, and there's a little you know bathroom in there. No one's allowed back there except us. So, okay, I go running back there, and there's no one there. What? <laughs> the bathroom door is open. I mean, there's nobody there. There's nowhere for her to hide. <laughs> wow. Just nobody there. So either I saw a ghost, or I was hallucinating. But I was definitely amidst uh, an anti-structural. Well, that's day true. on the job, yeah. And then I asked my boss, uh, "Hey, boss, do do do, do we have ghosts?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, she said, "Not that she knows of, but oddly enough, some dude came in a couple of weeks prior and said, did you know that you have a ghost following you around?' Said this to her. Oh, so she doesn't know any more about it than that. But uh, make of that what you will. Did I see my first ghost or?" Or was it just a was I just suffering sunstroke, <laughs> which is possible? Well, clearly she brought you a hat. Heat stroke. Um, well, yes. you know, here's the question: Is was there anything odd about her other than that she walked into employee only area? No, I mean it was if it was an apparition, it was certainly full body. I mean, see the clothes she was wearing now. I mean, she walked back. It there. looked like a person. I mean, oh, there yeah. was no difference. Yeah. Wow, that's a. Uh... <laughs> And there's no place that she could have gone besides through that door. I mean, it's not like it's not like one of those things where you saw her go in that direction and the door is on the wall there and she may have like walked behind a, a set of shelves or something no, and then turned around just, while you went around or the, the, no. I mean it's a straight shot from my eye okay. line. It's the door and nothing else. I mean And she went in the door. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> that is strange. So there's that. And I don't know if this is related or not, but I'll just throw it in for shits and giggles. Um, The day before, uh, when I was brushing my teeth, I saw out of the corner of my eye, I thought I saw, I should say, uh, walking past the bathroom door going into the kitchen. uh, It was like, I mean, it was someone's legs, but it would be just like, you know, if you're brushing your teeth in the sink and you see someone walking by out of the corner of your eye and you just see their legs, uh, but like a white robe. It was like a white robe, legs, zipped by, and I thought maybe, well, you know, maybe that was just a trick of my eyes or something, and and then I interpreted it as it was happening, you know, this trick. But then the next day when I saw this woman, I was like, well, maybe it's worth mentioning, you know. Huh. I don't know. That is curious. I mean, what was it, a couple weeks ago that I got you on the phone when Lisa yelped in the kitchen? (laughs) I was on the couch watching TV and she went into the kitchen and she was making a drink and she turned around and here's a quite large, uh, I don't know, black figure walking through the dining room and she laid eyes right on it and then watched it fade away uh, about halfway down the table. (laughs) So, and she, you know, she has seen different things in the house, but never anything that bold. And I mean, she let out a holler for that. Um, have you had a, an upswing in that kind of thing as of late? 
maybe even some things that you haven't talked about or you've kind of blown off or have you have you seen more of that sort of I don't know out of the corner of your eye or or even direct line of sight stuff have you had more of that lately than than not have you noticed well, a change in that I mean I, I guess define lately because there does seem to be an uptick in I mean, I think we've discussed um, the corner of my living room, you know, between the two doorways uh-huh. that is to my right or to the right of the television. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there always seems to be just a sphere of movement, let's call it, uh-huh. right around there. I mean, just always. Um, but always, I, I mean, I, I seem to remember not noticing it for a while, and then I would say that it's been back in the last few months. Okay. So that's not, you know, I wouldn't say weeks, I would say months. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, I find it interesting that that stuff is coming up, and not, and not only because you've gotten a job. Um, I, I, I mean, if I said, if if you just said, well, that's the only thing that's really that much different uh, in my daily life, then I'd, I'd say, well, that's that's a major change starting a new job. But here's what's also different: um, our phone conversations. <laughs> I mean, I get off at an, at an appointed hour pretty much every weekday um, that isn't the norm for most people. And I would call you on the way home for a half an hour. I mean, we did that every day for how freaking long? I mean, a year, maybe more. Mm -hmm. And then maybe at night, either we're doing the show or we're talking or what have you. And, um, and I've been busy with Cody's stuff with his graduation. You've been at work, uh, namely at the point where we would usually be talking. Um, that to me has been a definite change in in routine. You know, that's because I, I get in the car and I still pick up the phone and dial your number. I'm like, wait, he's at work. You know, um, I think there's a lot more that. Yes, yeah, so uh, and now you call me, changes. and now you kindly call me at one in the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> or two, or <laughs> or three. I almost called you last night, uh, and I can't even remember why now. But it was like two thirty, and I almost picked up the phone. and I said, "Let me give him a call." <laughs> You can. You you always can. Yeah, but um, but I think that that's been. Um, uh, I, I think starting a new job like that after you know not working for a while that it is a, a pretty big upheaval and it throws a lot of other tangent things, you know, out of out of kilter and out of routine. So um, it makes sense to me. I'm, I'm I mean I'm, I'm surprised that you saw something that vivid in the store of all places, which is kind of wild, but. Oh. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a neat story though. Yeah, I mean nothing scary about it because I thought it was a person until it wasn't yeah. there. <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled. I shall. Uh, by the way, if anyone here is a fan in the background, I don't know if you can. It's in another room, so probably you can't. It's not registering on my equipment here, but uh, it's very very warm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's been very hot today. Uh, although I've turned off the air conditioner to do the show, I'm going to leave that fan going in the, the other yeah. room. Um, all right, so all of that out of the way, do we have anything to discuss before I unleash the uh, ultimate Bill Burns interview? Uh, no, I say we roll on. All right. Get ready, get set, go, everybody. Here is uh, my interview with UFO Magazine's UFO Hunters and Ancient Aliens' own William J. Burns. Um he also does Future Theater with Nancy Burns, which is their podcast, and he alludes in the interview to perhaps doing a bigger radio show at some point in the near future. 
Um, catch up with him online at www.ufomag.com. Here he is, the one, the only, Bill Burns. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. So Paratopia, without further ado, here he is. You know him, you love him. UFO Hunters and UFO Magazine's own Mr. William J. Burns. Bill, thank you for coming back to the show. Ah, my pleasure. Glad to be back after all this time. I saw uh, my first episode of Ancient Aliens the other night, and and it was an episode with uh, underwater structures that may or may not be man-made, first of all, and then Mm -hmm. I guess may or may not be alien or something. Um, And you were on there, and I was surprised to to see you on there. Um, I noticed something that you pleasantly surprised, I should add, And, and I noticed something that you do that none of the other talking heads on on that show do, which is you preface everything by saying uh, the lore around this is, or one of the theories about this is, whereas it seems like nine times out of ten, the other people just say, yeah, it was extraterrestrials. <laughs> is, is that yeah, on purpose? I mean, do you notice yeah, the it's difference? Yeah, abso- it's absolutely on purpose. I mean, uh, I mean, you're dealing with total speculation. I mean, I um, if you ask me if I think there is a rationale to and I'm um, this is my third season. I already shot ten episodes of Ancient Aliens coming up, and the season three starts I think later this summer. I'm not sure. So um, and it's it, it's different from the two previous seasons. There's a lot of stuff where you wouldn't think there's an alien connection, and so there's a lot of speculation. But um, if you're asking me if I really think that uh, there's a rationale behind um, some kind of alien presence in ancient times or even going so far as whether we were seated here by aliens. I give that a lot of credence. It's not a belief system, but I give it a lot of credence. I think that um, Zechariah Sitchin and, and all the books that he's written about Nibiru and, 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 and ancient Sumer and, and et cetera, I think there's rationale in that. I think there's a lot of a rationale in what Emmanuel Velikovsky wrote uh, when he talked about um, all worlds in collision and um, how he was vilified about that. And then the person who vilified him the most happened to be one of the people who was working for the government investigating uh, UFOs. And I think that Von Danigan makes a certain point. I, I can argue against all of them, okay? I mean, that's one of the things you know, that I can do is say, look, I mean, there are certain things in Von Danigan's theory, and I've said that on Ancient Aliens. There are certain um, things in this theory about why this object is so massive and can only be seen from the air 
um, why it doesn't mean that aliens from outer space or another planet actually helped human beings cr create this in that shape and they couldn't see it from the ground because all you talk about is two things, scale and graph paper. Now, I know they don't have graph paper um, 5,000 years ago, but there is certainly scale. You can certainly scale something on a small scale and count the number of whatever units of measurement you have to make it larger. So, I mean, th uh, that doesn't take an Einstein to do. And that's how, if there were no alien intervention, that's how they probably did it. I mean, you can, anybody can do that, just scale something up. So I think that there are certainly conventional explanations for a lot of this. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm going the legend says, the lore says, because quite frankly, it's not a cut and dried track. It's, it's legend. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if you know about this specifically, but I'm guessing you probably do, uh, that they'd mentioned on the show was Dragon's Triangle. Uh, yeah, Dragon's Triangle, sure. That's in the, um, that's in the uh, it's off Japan, right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things they mentioned is that it was it's actually cordoned off by the government as a hazardous zone. Well, not all of it. I mean, uh, well, we did a UFO files on that seven years ago, I think, as well. It was in um, the Dragon Sea episode, and it was the Bermuda Triangle and the Dragon Sea, and uh, we did it with MPP, which was the precursor, by the way, to UFO hunters, and. Um, in it, we talked about the fact that there were areas of the Dragon Sea that the government prevented ships from going in because there was such a high number of accidents. There a number of accidents and ship sinkings also had to do with the fact that there were a lot of rogue waves in that area. They didn't just disappear like, you know, the Philadelphia Experiment story. There were a lot of rogue waves. There were a lot of rogue waves because, as we have now seen graphically, there are a lot of earthquakes in that area. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember, Japan is on one of the most active earthquake zones along the entire Pacific Rim. So um, there are a lot of... Um, earthquakes in that area that generate um, rogue waves, uh, not actually full-blown 150-foot tsunamis, but rogue waves. And if you've ever seen the movie Poseidon Adventure, the Poseidon Adventure with the Shelley Winters doing that, you know, breaststroke through the bottom of the ship, uh, it's a very famous scene, the, the, um, a, a rogue wave will swamp the largest of liners, and a smaller rogue wave will certainly swamp a Japanese fishing vessel, and the Japanese uh, are aware that um, that's a very volatile area in terms of earthquakes and rogue waves. Oh, Not so necessarily UFOs, right. <laughs> they, they neglected to mention that on Ancient Aliens. Funny well, look, um, Ancient Aliens um, takes a position that we're going to look at, and, and I think that's a good point. I mean, remember the old, I mean, there's an evolution in this. And, um, in fact, I, I think I'm teaching a course on this, but there's an evolution in this. And the evolution is that if you look at, um, let's just say you look at a lot of the derisive material on Fox and you look at a lot of the derisive material on CNN, where and, and even the Peter Jennings thing on ABC, where you know Stanton Friedman got slammed for being a promoter of Roswell, which is insane. But um, I mean, talk about unfair and unbalanced. But the um, position always was 
and still is to a large extent on a lot of the mainstream networks, it always is, look, if you talk about UFOs as if you actually give credence to the possibility of their existence, notice I didn't say believe them to be true, give credence to the possibility of their existence. If you talk about UFOs that way, then you are in the wingnut kook uh, crazy category. Whereas anybody who comes on, even with the most implausible arguments, but arguments that literally fall back on some kind of wingnut conventional explanation, it's, it's Stan Friedman has said this, ABA, anything but alien. So that is the standard fare of most mainstream networks. When uh, the History Channel and the Discovery, and even to an extent the Discovery Channel was like mainstream networks, but even in the early days of the UFO files, because I was on those early shows, and, and um, the Weller-Grossman shows and, 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 and Cosgrove-Moore shows, in those shows, literally, there was almost a prerequisite that you had to bring on the skeptic, whether it's a Bill Nye, a Joe Nickel, a James McGaha, Mike Shermer. You've, you've got to bring the, you, you, you have to trot these people out because these are the people who are going to tell you the, uh, the same truth. Now, their explanations for these things are, in some cases, incredibly stupid, but they're going to tell you the same truth. So you'll always arrive at the same truth, even if the people telling the same truth, same truth, don't even know what they're talking about. And the classic example was when um, uh, Hearst, Actuality Television, uh, bought the documentary rights, the reality documentary rights the day after Roswell. And, so, and, and, and I produced that with History Channel. And th this is all the way back. This is before UFO Hunters. And, and I produced that. And I brought a lot of people from, from, from mainstream Army intelligence, the CIA, et cetera, et cetera, to talk about um, the Corso story. Real or not, to talk about the Corso story and who he was. And then History Channel trotted out people who hadn't even read the book, but were working off critiques from other people. In other words, these were second and third hand skeptics. At least bring out a first hand skeptic. At, at, at least read the book before you critique it. They, weren't even, they didn't even read the book. They were making these mistakes. But they had to be balance. And I wasn't even allowed a rebuttal to some of these individuals. So by the time we get to ancient aliens, and now UFO hunters made it a point to give the witness, and, and you see the evolution of this in UFO files, gradually more and more um, let's focus on the UFO um, stories and where skeptics are relevant, handle them. But by the time we get to UFO hundreds, which is 2007, by the time we get there, now we are not there to hunt the skeptics, which is why Kevin Cook wound up on the show for the third season. And this is the reason for, uh, for Ted Ackworth as well. They migrated from a scientist, Ted Ackworth, saying, look, I'm not going to say there are no UFOs. I'm just not going to say that I can't fully endorse this as a UFO theory because, and that made a lot of sense, and Ted had a lot of fans. I still get phone calls from people asking for his photograph. But Ted couldn't be on season three. He just had a baby, and he just couldn't travel. He was starting a new company. So they got Kevin Cook, 
And what they tried to do with Kevin Cook, and this was a mistake, what they tried to do with Kevin Cook was turn the UFO hunters from a very successful, and I mean really in terms of ratings, enormously successful season two, to a show more like Ice Road Truckers or right now American Pickers or Porn Stars for, uh, that are now big on season three, which was get some real or dynamic among the three people. Season two was each person, and, and this, you know, I designed this, so I mean, I'm, I, I was very pleased with what I did for season two. When we were setting up the um, roles of the various levels of investigation, okay? One of the things that I wanted to do was um, Pat went into the wilderness. Pat was the field guy. So if somebody had to go into a cave and look for something, it was Pat. I'm not going to go into a cave, right? I, I, wasn't, I couldn't even be insured to rappel down the side of a cave, okay? That's how bad that was. Plus, you'd have to have those sunglasses surgically removed, and you don't want that. Yeah, exactly, right. Or um, if somebody were going to be the science guy, like I'm going to talk to Dr. Ravish Mekesh from, you know, Orange County Labs to talk about how he's going to zap this piece of rock with laser to get a good spec. That was Ted. Why? Because he had a PhD in physics, right? If somebody was going to talk to witnesses and do interrogation and get the stories out and talk to cops, that, that something I did. And at the end of each episode, we would come together and kind of hash out stuff. That was kind of the latter part of season one and all of season two. And it really worked. In season three, and this is a story, networks have a habit of fixing things that aren't broken. And in season three, what the network tried and admittedly did not work was to uh, have Kevin come on and Kevin's background was as a stage magician. He was an engineer. Yeah. He was on smash lab. Yeah. But he was also a stage magician and he was the guy looking for the trick behind everything. And, and the reason it didn't work was that there was no trick. I mean, the people seeing what they said they, they were seeing actually saw it when we were in Dulcie. That's why Kevin was so kind of like, um, perplexed so many times on the air because there'd be a photo as there was in the Dulcie episode of this animal looking torso, basically a cow, bovine torso with a human looking head. And the answer was, oh, well, you photoshopped it. Well, you couldn't have photoshopped it because when the photo was taken, there was no Photoshop. So, I mean, that was literally, you know, uh, there's no answer for that. So, the point is, by the time we get to Ancient Aliens, and Ancient Aliens, and that's an evolution, and that's a show that evolved. Remember, the first episode of Ancient Aliens was episode one, season three of UFO Hunters. That was an idea that Pat and I, Pat was more uh, aggressive about it. He was more articulate, uh, articulate about it than I was, but I fully supported Pat, and I argued for it as well. We wanted to do something a, with Giorgio um, Tsoukalos, because we liked him, he was a friend. And we wanted to do something about um, some of the Native American symbols in the rock. And that was in the original pilot for UFO Hunters. We were really pushing that. Well, finally, the network liked it, but the network liked it enough that they wanted to go to a less expensive show. They wanted to go back to the old UFO files. So what they did, in effect, was they took the format for UFO files, literally. I mean, I, I've shot both shows. I've shot all three shows, so I know exactly how these shows are filmed. 
and um, they went back to the old format for that, which was a crew of one camera person, one sound guy, maybe, um, you know, a director, a producer-director. Um, and uh, if they could afford one, which they usually couldn't, um, kind of, um, it's called a swing man. Usually it's the, it's the sound guy setting up lights and the camera guy setting up lights. Lights are, as you know, because you because you're a filmmaker, lights are vitally important when you're lighting a set. So um, <laughs> yes, lights went, are vitally important when you're lighting a set. That's no, they, uh, but I mean, in terms of you can do. I mean, uh, we've all seen amateur films, right? We've all seen. Hell, I've these made things. them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, like so you've seen these things. So uh, anyway, my point is that these are the kinds of things where uh, you'll see something and um, it's like lit really strangely, really odd, things like that. So uh, the point that I'm trying to make is it is really vital to get a, a lighting person who can work with your camera operator to understand how to light a set. So yeah, that's an expensive proposition. So um, it'll be a crew of two or three that will show up. And that's going back to the old UFO files format. But beyond that, the point is to talk about ancient aliens, not to talk about the skeptics for ancient aliens. So when the time comes, since I know a lot of this stuff is basically lore and, and legend and, and stuff that came up from um, Zechariah Sitchin and um, Eric Von Danigan and uh, oh, Georgia really follows Eric's, Eric's lead, because of that, and there were really intelligent people talking about this. I mean, Graham Hancock is, is phenomenally intelligent. Uh, Carl Wilson and people like that. Phil Coppins. But, but nevertheless, um, you really have to characterize some of this stuff with, this is a legend, this is the lore, this is reported, these are alleged. And, and I think it's only fair to do that. The fact that you don't have skeptics on that, is that... Um now, you're talking about it in terms of the evolution of these shows on this network, but is there a larger uh, relaxation of that policy in TV that you see? No. I mean, uh, you saw that with uh, when history ran um, when history ran um, on Monster Quest. They did the Frank Ficino Flatwoods Monster, and they did um, Lloyd Pye's Alien um, Starchild. And they really brought up these phenomenal um, skeptics who knew nothing. I mean, Joe Nickel talking about the Flatwoods Monster. I mean, come on. You know, what does he know about that? I mean, first of all, uh, the Flatwoods Monster is, is, isn't some new concoction that Frank Ficino came up with. I mean, Gray Barker wrote about it. First of all, he's from that area in West Virginia, but Gray Barker wrote about that all the way back in the 1950s. Uh, Ivan T. Sanderson, who investigated things, wrote about it in the 1960s. And um, there's been some really good research done on that. But um, literally, it was Joe Nichols saying, oh, bunch of nuts, bunch of drunken, hooch-drinking West Virginia hillbillies. There you go. So much for the Flatwoods monster. I don't think it was a real monster myself. I think it was something else. But the fact is that I think there was something. And um, who did they bring up for the um, Starchild Skull? Unbelievable, the Starchild Skull. There's a case where it's nailed on DNA that it's something anomalous, right? Nailed on DNA. And, and, and 
even if now Lloyd has found out that the mitochondrial DNA, we can go with it, that's like a whole hour on that, but Lloyd has found out that the mitochondrial DNA is also, uh, does not have a match in the um, NIH database. But, but still, um, so somebody said, oh, it's the same thickness as a baby's skull. Well, that's it. So that's great. So they just debunked the whole thing. So they still do that. That's what the group doing, I forget, Wolf Mountain Productions or something, that's what they did. A lot of this is production-driven, not so much network-driven. I mean, we got, a lot of way, we, we got away with a lot on the show without having to drag in skeptics. But um, I think either the, I think it was Wolf Mountain or something, or White Mountain, whatever the production company was. They and they just, and they just torpedoed two stories. Well, on that note, let me uh, switch topics here because we've uh, sort of a couple episodes ago torn into an Angela Joyner interview with Jim Penniston uh, about his alleged binary code. And I, I, I know you're familiar with this, and I just want to ask you, a, a complete genius on our message board actually wrote to us and said, you know, when did Jim say that uh, it was important for him to look at the binary code? Well, when Prometheus Entertainment and the History Channel started going, rifling through his material, right? And so who produced the, uh, the documentary? for Kim Sheeran and what are her credentials ancient aliens and angels and demons decoded so this listener is trying to make the point that maybe they just sort of concocted this binary code right because it fits in with the whole theme of ancient aliens and angels and demons decoded that sort of thing do you think that that's possible could there be sort of some sort of collusion like that uh, you know i spoke to charles holt about that uh, just uh back in march i think was it march yeah was it march um, Charles Holt, Bob Salas, Mark Easter from MUFON, and myself, and Seth Shostak, we were the panel of experts promoting the motion picture Battle Los Angeles. Okay. So uh, we were working for Sony, basically. But working for Sony, I mean, it was kind of a backhanded way. It was to try to set the, I mean, everybody knows the Battle of Los Angeles is not a documentary. It's, you know, like a war of the worlds kind of thing. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's pure fiction. But what Sony wanted to do was, and it was a good idea, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it, was in order to try to ground the motion picture in a context of the real battle of LA from 1942, right? February, 1942. They um, wanted to kind of get UFO history in there. So the elements were like say Bob Sala and Charles Holt uh, as firsthand witnesses, Bob Sala, of course, the uh, right, uh, the monster air force base to the missile shutdown. And Charles Holt was Arya Fentwaters <clears throat> to try and get firsthand eyewitnesses to confrontations or encounters, I'm trying to make this as benign as possible, encounters between the uh, military and something, something strange out there. And Mark Easter as well, what does MUFON do as an organization that kind of sets the stage? And of course, I was there really to moderate the panel, uh, like be a host, and also to talk about the history of these things, the, the, or the long history, Seth Shostak was the official debunker. And the, the point of it was that Charles and I, now remember, Charles was our guest on UFO Hunters. Uh, he was the guest at 
the National Press Club, Leslie Kane, James Fox, uh, kind of uh, a neo-disclosure of pilots tell about the UFO experiences. That was the basis for Leslie Kane's book. And uh, he talked there, and he's been on uh, UFO files before, and certainly Cosgrove Mora, and, and, and so is Jim Penniston. I mean, so this is not, right? And, he, and, and we did the whole Bent Waters episode with Nick Pope and, and, and um, Charles Holt at RAF Bentwaters. Nowhere in any of those conversations did the subject of binary code come up. You can go on YouTube and you could find Jim Penniston's presentation at the National Press Club. He's not talking about a binary code. He's talking about his impressions about when he touched the craft and his notes, his sketchbook, and, and his designs of the um, graphics, the hieroglyphics that were on it. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. Now, um, one wonders where the binary code came from. First of all, first of all um, one of the problems that uh, Charles talked about, to me at least, was that he felt without naming names, he felt that as people approached Peniston with their impressions of what Peniston's experience was, okay, you have to get, take like a hundred steps back and go to the days after Bent Waters in late, 19, late December 1980, right through New Year's. And remember, I did five radio shows with Jim Penniston and Charles Halt and, and Nick Pope and Peter Robbins and, Pete, and those guys. Did right? you ever see so his notebook? Did... Yeah, I saw his notebook. You saw Penniston's and... notebook? Yeah. Did he have binary code in the back of it? I, I didn't. I just saw the page where he um, – where he because uh, he, he brought it to the National Press Club. Right. And he, yeah, he brought it there. This is not a big secret. And um, so all I saw was the, was the sketch designs. Okay. Well, so I didn't see any binary code, mainly because I didn't have it in my hand to look through it. I just saw what he showed. The, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that going all the way back to the radio shows that we did, I think, to last year, there really was no mention of binary code. I mean, and, and I was on the show with Jim a lot. One of the things that, that Charles felt, Charles Holt felt or feels happens with a lot of witnesses is that other people are able to swing these witnesses into their orbit and influence them about their interpretations of what the witnesses saw. And then that then becomes part of the witness story as if it really happened. So without kind of naming names, and a lot of this came out of that conference, I think, in Kansas City. I'm not sure where it was. I'm not sure which conference it was, but it really kind of started on there. And then suddenly it's a whole new aspect to a story. And this happens a lot. I mean, this is my phenomenal criticism of the kind of commentators about UFOs, that you've got commentators and you can just slug in names who, not experts, but commentators, and not witnesses, but commentators, who basically try to draw as many witnesses or experts into their orbit. And in so doing, recreate a witness story so that they have something new to shop at their respective websites. 
because the whole point is owning witnesses. Because but if you on, own on the other hand, yeah, and I and I completely agree and see what you're saying, but this is slightly different, or on Jim's part, in that he had to have written down 14 pages worth of ones and zeros. I mean, it's not just well, a matter of psychologically you know, sort of going, yeah, yeah, and agreeing with somebody and confabulating that way unconsciously. Well, I mean, according to Charles, that was not part of the original story. And to um, go back even further, in the days after the actual event in the forest, all of the enlisted personnel, Penniston uh, was a staff sergeant, all of the enlisted personnel, not Halt, he was deputy base commander, they were not going to mess with this guy. And Halt had a, which I really, he told me never to talk about, but he, he had dating back from the Vietnam War and post-Vietnam War, a history of being involved in uh, black operations, which I think was a detail about, because I asked him about one, and he, I thought he was going to freak out all over the place. Don't ever mention that to me again. So um, they're not going to mess with him, okay? Because if you know his background, you know that he's not a person to mess with. But they went after the enlisted personnel, and I'm talking about Air Force Office of Special in, uh, Investigations, AFOSI, right? Office of, Office of um, Special Investigations for, for the Air Force. These guys went after the Pennistons, and Larry Warren tells that story. Uh, um, they went after these guys, and they told them not to tell the full story to the commanding officer. Well, I mean, so they literally stepped right into the chain of command at RAF Bentwaters and said, don't tell your commanding officer, which is why the commanding officer came out and criticized Halt and the others for saying there was a craft when he said they told me there was a light. And so all the debunkers, the Ian Redpaths and all the people from the UK, they just leapt on that and said, you could see right here there was dissembling going on and, and like a false story. Well, there was a false story because the Air Force Office of Special Investigations ordered these guys, ordered these guys not to tell the full story. That's number one. Two, they then used all kinds of, of various drugs, sleep-inducing drugs, sodium pentothal, hypnosis, whatever. I mean, literally not to recover memories, but to cover up memories. So you have guys who literally were um, psychologically manipulated by the Air Force to deep six the story. So this full story never got out in the days afterwards. And the other agency that was investigating the story was the NSA because they had a base near Orford Ness, a unit, and they were there. So you've got NSA Air Force Office and Special Investigations literally jumping all over the witnesses, doing all kinds of things, according to Larry Warren, basically traumatizing these guys, filling them with, with all kinds of fear. So in that interaction, Penniston never told the Air Force Office of Special Investigations about his notebook. So he basically, and he told this on the air. I never told my notebook. What are you crazy? Well, the I'm problem gonna... is the problem with that is we've heard him in interviews talking about how it was common practice that they would keep a notebook uh, to jot down any notes for anything like a crash, which is what they thought this was at uh, first. So they would have known that he had a notebook. 
And he just lied and said, I, I didn't have one. I just didn't give it to him. I mean, he basically told them. He, yeah, but if that, you, I, I got to go back to what Jeff Ritzman said on our show, which is, and back me up here, Bill. Uh, if, if this were really, truly some sort of cover up of, of the proportions that it's supposed to be, wouldn't they be rifling through his house? Wouldn't they be going through everything? Wouldn't they know about the notebook? I mean, you don't leave evidence like that with a massive. No, well, now they are. Uh, now they do. What 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 he's talking about is in the days afterwards. There was so much confusion. Remember, we're talking about this from the perspective of thirty years. Um, in the days after this. There was so much confusion. Literally, you had two separate American agencies jumping on it. The British were jumping on it. They had agents out in the field talking to people like uh, Vincent Thurkettle, getting him to deny it, and then he recanted his denial, I mean, which was incredible. Um, nobody talked to um, Seaman, who was the uh, keeper at the, Orford, uh, at the Orford Nest Lighthouse. But uh, here's a case where in the days following, all they cared about was that this story be kept under wraps. They had to tell the commander something because the base commander knew that Charles Holt was going out into the forest that night um, to put this, quote unquote, put this matter to rest. Then they knew something really big happened because they knew that an Air Force security personnel person had to be had to be taken to the hospital. She was unfit for duty. She was like traumatized. But that was on the first night. So they knew all this. So literally all they cared about was getting the security detail from that first night to shut up and not talk about this anymore. Um, Halt told his commander he made a tape recording. Halt was ordered to write a report, right? And then when another one of his superior officers called him and said he was making that report public, Halt freaked out and said, don't do that. It'll ruin my life. It'll ruin your life. I wish the hell I'd never seen the damn thing or gone out there. That's what he said. He said that in public to me. I wish the hell this damn thing never happened. It's ridiculous. It just made him a figure he never wanted to be. So um, what I'm trying to get to is that you've got multiple nights of um, activity. And on the last night, the Charles Holt night, the night they saw the object um, split into a number of other objects and take off, nobody was really messed with. The messing took place on the night that James Penniston led that detail out into the forest. And there he said he saw the object. Their issue was, A, there was physical trace evidence in the sand. B, the physical trace evidence also had physical trace evidence, i.e. the radiation readings from the area. So um, they wanted Penniston shut down. So he told me, he, and we didn't just tell me, he told the whole radio audience, I never gave them my book. That was those in the days following. Now the book is public, so now of course they know that he had a book and that he wrote stuff in it. But he never told them the complete story. How much of his story comes from the 1994 hypnosis session? Do you know? No, I don't. And that's the other problem with, uh, as you and I have talked about on the air, hypnosis. I mean, you just you just don't know. Well, I not mean, only hypnosis, but I mean, this was hypnosis. 
um, if I'm reading it correctly, it was a hypnosis session bringing him back to when he was being interrogated under hypnosis by the right. OSI uh, using sodium pentothal. So it's hypnosis within hypnosis, you know, uh, from 1981 to 1994. Um, and he's being asked leading questions by whoever this hypnotist is. It's just – I read that and I go, oh, no. Does this mean that all of his time traveler stuff came from this hypnosis session and now – Well, that's what uh, I mean. I mean – yeah, see, that's the problem. Uh, and this is the problem with trying to own witnesses, because you could see a story evolve through various levels of interrogation and, and hypnotic regression until you can't trust it anymore. So what do you think the real story is? If you had to go back, do you, do you think Unsolved Mysteries is pretty much it? That's Jeff's theory. If we just watch Unsolved Mysteries, that's the story. Everything else No, I think you should just watch UFO Hunters, and that's the story. <laughs> well, of course you think that. Of course I do. Why would I, you know, you know, why would I think, think anything else? UFO Hunters, on UFO Hunters, for the very first time on pre-recorded live television, for the very first time, Folks heard there was another witness in the watchtower, heard a few things in that episode. There was a, a witness in the watchtower who saw the craft. Now, remember, this is night two or night three, depending on how you count, where here is a craft or day three, rather. Here is a craft that... Charles Holt is talking about on tape, um, shining the light through the trees. Now, you have a person in the watchtower who's confirmed to Charles Holt. You know, he never wants to go public. That's fine. Who's confirmed to Charles Holt that he saw a light over the forest shining a beam down on the nuclear storage areas. So that's the first time you heard there was an independent, not a participant, not somebody in the forest, not somebody with the Peniston crew, not somebody with the Holt crew on a watchtower distant because, and, and this, you know, is something that uh, you have to appreciate somebody like Gary Hazeltine for bringing up because Gary Hazeltine was an RAF police officer or is an RAF police officer. I hope he still is. And uh, he said that those watchtowers are manned 24-7. Charles Holt agreed and said there was a witness in the watchtower who saw the whole thing. So that's the first time that ever came out, by the way, in talking about the Bentwater story, hmm. independent witness corroboration. Two, what came out from, from Charles Holt was that subsequent investigations by the British and the Americans showed that there were radar hits. So that all the skeptic stuff about no radar hits, oh, they couldn't be anything there because the radar, this is an important restricted area. Radar, radar did pick it up. So that came out. So I think that the best story is UFO hunters because we actually did a third thing. Did you ever get a chance to ask the witness why, uh, why he stayed anonymous all these years? I didn't because I never met him. Um, Charles Holt said he would never reveal himself. He just, you know, he said, look at the mess. Holt's attitude is, look at the mess everybody got into. Do you think I want to, um, somebody wants to wreck his life by going public? Not on your, not on your life. And why does and Holt right. still do TV shows and interviews and things like that? He is 
Well, I'll, I'll answer that in a second. Uh, the third thing we did on UFO Hunters was that, um, and this is what I'm really proud of, we went to the lighthouse, to Orford Ness, because the big skeptical argument from Ian Redpath was these guys were so dumb and so panicked, oh, those crazy Americans drunk from a Christmas party, they mistook the lighthouse glowing red for a craft. And of course, the, he said that they would see the light every five seconds because he's going on Charles Holt's tape recorder. And Holt said, I didn't want to run out of, um, uh, um, I didn't want to run out of tape. I didn't want to run out of um, my recording material. So I was only clicking it every time I saw the light. So it wasn't that we saw the light every five seconds. It was I was stopping the tape recorder. The light wasn't every five seconds. I mean, it was, it was like a normal reaction. I'm not, I'm not trying to do, um, the light wasn't every, the, the offered nest light. That was one. Two, we showed that in an interview with Seaman, who was the um, lighthouse keeper, that there was a metal bar over the light. So that when it crossed the land, when it made its 360 and crossed the land, the light wouldn't have played on the land so as to be mistaken for something else other than a light. Okay? So it was in a different position. You could only see it from the runway um, on a clear night. And and, and even when you could get an image of it, um, it wasn't a direct image of a bright light because there was a metal bar over it. And three, we actually measured the GPS waypoints, uh, the positioning of where Halt saw the light in the clearing and where the lighthouse played, because we, have, uh, uh, we took positions on that and showed in a model that the lighthouse was in one position, that the light in the clearing was in another. So we literally debunked the big debunker of the lighthouse theory. That's why I think we did the best presentation of Bentwaters. And then, of course, at the end of it, we had Nick Pope and we discussed two things. Uh, the theory that the reason neither the U.S. nor the Brits investigated it was that the U.S. dumped it off on the Brits because it's Rendlesham Forest. It's not American territory. And the Brits dumped it off on the Americans saying, why should we handle the damn thing? Because it was at an American Air Force base. So that was why that deliberately fell through the cracks. And the final ending of the show was Margaret Thatcher telling uh, Georgina Bruno, I'm my dear, there are some things you just can't tell the people. So I think that as a piece, and this is what I, we did on UFO Hunters, which none of the other shows really do. We, A, treated the events as a narrative, very important. And then B, structured the, the main logical points in the narrative so that by the end of that hour, you literally had summations that were wrapped up as summations instead of these kind of open-ended, oh, well, the skeptic says this. No, we didn't do that in, in Bent Waters. We basically showed that the skeptical arguments fail and that there were rational reasons for why there is controversy. And uh, that's how we left it. So, but then in the ensuing two years, um, right, you've got the hypnosis sessions, you've got um, a story that, that still keeps evolving. And one of the reasons Charles Holt said it evolves is that as 
other kind of magnets in the UFO in the UFO field as other magnets approach witnesses, the story then becomes colored so that that magnet can be the person owning that witness. And this has nothing to do with Angela because Angela is just she's a, uh, she's reporting this on the radio. We're oh, talking yeah. about people, yeah, we're talking about people at conferences really manipulating witnesses, and a lot of these and a lot of this manipulation goes on. I mean, I you know, believe me, uh, firsthand I can tell you uh, that's how a lot of the Corso story got blown way out of proportion. And uh, it was insane what happened as various people in the field. And you could, again, supply your own names, kind of locked on and said, oh, now this is my story now, and we'll tell the story that's correct. Paul Harris? Yeah. <laughs> you can say it. It's okay. You can say you that can on say the it. show. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. What happened was she and Maurizio Bayada actually took the manuscript day after, Rod, uh, day after Roswell, took the manuscript, translated it into Italian. And we're publishing it as their book. Right. I had to go to Simon and Schuster and say, "Hey, look what they're doing!" And S and S shut them down. Well, let's get into that in one hot second. I just have one more question about Bent Waters. Uh, well, specifically the binary code. Did anyone from UFO Hunters uh, on the production crew look at his notebook? No. No, no. Oh, he wasn't on UFO Hunters, the episode. He was, we interviewed him, we spoke to him at the National Press Conference. And that National Press Club Conference was uh, um, um, just a firestorm of activity. So we literally set up shop. In fact, I don't think any of those interviews ever aired. We set up shop because we interviewed Five Symington, we interviewed James Fox, we interviewed... Uh, Bruce McAbee, those interviews were set up in an ante room in a hallway outside of the main press club. So um, Pennison was there with the book, but he, I don't remember him talking about the binary code at all. He showed the sketch, he showed the um, hieroglyphic type markings on the craft, but the binary code really never came up. I mean, nobody in all these years has seen that book. It just seems like something he would have shown somebody somewhere along the way that could verify. Maybe whether, he whether, did. Maybe he showed it in Kansas. I don't know. But, Bob, but I just know that at the time, that didn't really come up. The time travel stuff never came up. Right. Uh, and before we move on to Corso, because I do want to ask you some things about that, um, did you have an answer as to why Charles Halt, if he, since he hates all of this stuff so much, continues to you know, be a part of it? Well, yeah. I mean... On the one hand, uh, he is defending his reputation. I mean, remember, when the, the blowback came, I mean, he doesn't need to do this. When the blowback came on all these Air Force people are crazy, it's not true, they're lying, Charles Holt is mistaken, um, he basically is saying, look, this is what I saw, this is what I saw happen, and I'm the eyewitness. And so what happens a lot, as you know, in, in talking about UFOs, is that, well, I mean, you're seeing it right now at the Annie Jacobson book on Area 51. What you see is that people who know nothing but read what other people wrote get so angry that somebody dares bring up a UFO causality 
that they go on the warpath. I mean, I can't tell you how many radio shows that I've been on where at some point it's the one thing to be on the wacky radio morning drive time shows, right? Whack, whack. Hey, you're a crazy guy. Whack, whack. See a UFO? I mean, I get that a lot. Fine. You know, I'll promote my books and I'll take that. The, um, but there are shows that I've been on where these aggressive people will, will, will attack and say, how dare you say there's life on other planets? How dare you say human beings are the only, aren't the only creatures in the universe? And you point out, well, you know, we know there was bacterial life on Mars, so there goes your argument. You know, even the mainstream scientists have said it, you know, and they, they just get really mad. So Halt has taken far more flack than I have about uh, what happened at Bent Waters. Well, I've taken no flack about Ben Waters, but Holt has taken a lot. And so um, his attitude is, yeah, if somebody invites me and is going to pay my way, um, I'll tell them what happened. And I'm, 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 I'm going to argue what I saw so that I don't get smeared because there are too many people distorting what I've said, what I saw, and, and the presentations that I've said. And I'm probably making a distortion here myself. But um, that's what he said. So I'm going to say it firsthand. I mean, he, he really is an honorable guy and um, a guy who uh, doesn't like to see his own statements distorted. And so he will walk around and talk about it. Because if you don't, somebody else is going to own your story. Right. Well, and this brings us full circle back into Corso. Uh, and you've probably answered this six ways from Sunday. Uh, but how about one more time? Sure. Uh, which is so uh, Paula Harris and wh whoever else they, they re-release this manuscript and then people on various message boards read this and they go oh my god all the stories about Bill Burns having heavily edited this and being a disinformation artist and all this sort of stuff are true because there's a lot more in that manuscript than the book that, that ended up being published what is your answer to that as to why some of the more outlandish or esoteric or how, whatever word you'd like to put on that material um, got left on the cutting room floor. You're talking about Dawn of a New Age. Here's how Dawn of a New Age got created, okay? So here's the real story. One, it got created after Day After Roswell. If, you, if somebody bothers to go to the U.S. Copyright Office and look at the copyright dates, you will see that um, Corso went back and copyrighted it as a result of the lawsuit that he filed against the motion picture company, because he said the motion picture company didn't have the right under contract to get into a deal for the second book that Simon Schuster was going to publish called Day After Dallas. So he sued. And at which point, September 1997, at which point he registered copyright for Dawn of the New Age. Dawn of the New Age did not pre-exist day after Roswell. What happened was in the course of all the material that um, – I, I have the original handwritten stuff, so I know exactly what I'm talking about – um, he made copies of it and, and that's how the copies circulated. But I mean, I have the cut and pasted and stapled manuscript and everything. He wrote it for me as part of his descriptions of material in day after Roswell. So are you saying that, that dawn of the new age, that, that there's material in there that you didn't even see because it doesn't reflect the original handwritten manuscript that he gave to you? 
I, 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 I've never read, you know, what is in English. All I know is this, that when he and I began working on the book, and first of all, other editors had tried to work on the book with him and they just left in, they just threw their hands up. They said it made no sense. So I said to Corso, and this was back in 1990, early 95, I said, look, the book came out in 97. I said, why don't you take, because he said, I have all these notes. I said, fine, just give me the notes. You know, I don't need, I don't need you to write anything because I think that all the previous manuscripts I work with, giants, things like that, they're not going to be of any help. We have to come up with the stuff about Roswell, not your prior military career. Because he had stuff on, for example, uh, uh, I remember in Dawn of a New Age, he had stuff on irradiated food, a whole thing. And I said, we'll put it in day after Roswell, but I mean, irradiated food has nothing really to do with the Roswell crash debris. I think it, it, there's a small mention of it in um, Day After Roswell. But um, there were things like the DNA bomb, okay? And, and the point was that was stuff that he said they worked on in Army R&D, but it had no, I mean, when, when we went over the rough notes with the editor at Simon & Schuster, he said, that's fine, but you only have 100,000 or so words and um, we have to get this book out. Uh, we have to have it on literally printing by January 1997 if it's going to be shipping before June or July 1997. So you really don't have much time. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff really can't go in. In other words, Dawn of a New Age was never meant to be a book. They were notes for day after Roswell. What happened was during the lawsuit, Corso got so mad that he said, nobody wants to, nobody read my original stuff. And he took that and he gave that when he went to Italy to Paul Harris and Maurizio Baiata. Who, um, and then nothing happened. And then Corso died right, in 1998. Then Baiata and Paul Harris went to Corso's son, Phil Jr., and the lawyer who then took over the case and got the rights back from the motion picture company and said, we want to publish this book um, they didn't know. Nobody knew. I knew, but since nobody asked me, you know, nobody knew that Phil Corso had copyrighted the material. So they copyrighted a manuscript which literally contains the same material than Day After Roswell. So I could have filed a copyright infringement suit. But then Corso came back to me and his lawyer and said, what do we do? I said, well, you know, I said, I, I saw what the contract was. I saw what Paul Harris did in the contract and Biata did in the contract. I don't know how much Paul Harris was in it. It was the Biatas who did it. I saw, but there were these two brothers. Uh, I saw what's in the contract and I realized that, you know, I said, look, here's what you've given away. And I explained what was in the contract and I explained, you never gave them the right to copyright the book yet. They're copywriting that material they've infringed on your father's copyright. So then they sued Bayada and Bayada settled. 
And that was this whole flap of the UFO International Congress. They said, oh, how do we sue him? How do we sue him? And so the reason or the way you sue him is you wait till he comes to it. You got to go to the State Department, which they're willing to do. We went into federal court, ninth district. Or he said he's coming to the International UFO Congress, just hire a process server to wait for him outside the room and sue him. And that was, that's that whole YouTube where Bayada is screaming that I did it. And of course, I didn't sue him. I'm, I'm not a party to the lawsuit. Again, this is what happens in this crazy thing. So um, they sued him. They settled. And then at the end of the settlement, and uh, then, uh, then Jaime Musan bellies up and says, oh, you have to, you have to um, publish the book in Spanish. Fine, I negotiated the deal with the Spanish publisher for the two of them, negotiated it. Um, I don't know if they ever saw royalties. I never saw any. And, and that's how the book got into Spanish. But the point is, these are all re-edited versions of a non-manuscript because the people who were buying it and trafficking in it never even knew the manuscript existed until after Phil Sr., Colonel Corso, filed the lawsuit. And that's when he took the manuscript wasn't really a manuscript, but he took it to the copyright office. But it was literally notes for the two of us to work on the manuscript for day after Roswell for the book. And that's why not everything in, 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 in Dawn of a New Age got in. So the argument that somehow I'm some kind of a disinformation um, uh, person working for intelligence, that was all Paula Harris's concoction. Yeah, I mean, this almost sounds like... Uh you know, an artist or a writer who, you know, didn't want his work edited. <laughs> it's like, oh, nobody understands me, except it's even less than that, because this was it's just sort of less than that, because that it, had. Had to do with, it had to do with the lawsuit. It did, that's what it had to do. It had to, and, and, and I mean, this whole thing fell apart because Phil Corso felt that he wasn't getting what he wanted to get from the motion picture company. OK, that was the basis of this thing. And how dare you sell a second book? And, uh, and so he hires this lawyer, storefront lawyer. Uh, I don't know anything about him. I just know that he files a lawsuit that immediately was dismissed, okay? And for, for a non-suit, there was no jurisdiction. And um, so that's what happened. So everybody's ready to settle. We all want to, you know, get back on track. He's mad. So he copyrights the other manuscript. It's fine. It was, no, it was a non-book, right? And here's what broke it open. He goes back to the Art Bell show. And through a, another intermediary, whose name I won't mention, another intermediary, they hook up with Steven Seagal. And they misrepresent. So, of course, it was not the most honest person in the world. They misrepresent the fact that they own the motion picture rights the day after Roswell. They misrepresented it was a lie. Okay? That person, believing they really did own the rights, contacts Simon and Schuster because they've gotten into a deal, supposedly. His lawyer, who's a major lawyer in Los Angeles, contacts Simon and Schuster for the quit claim when you sell the motion picture rights to a book, the publisher signs a quit claim. And uh, the publisher calls me, I'm the agent. And I call the lawyer and say, I'm terribly sorry, but the rights are owned by a company called um, Rosewood Woods Productions. They own the rights. I'm, I'm sitting here with the rights agreement. And, then, and, and it's a closed deal. Once the book gets purchased, once the book is 
published, that closes the rights deal for the movie. Sorry. I don't know where you got your information from. Lawyer, very upset, goes back to his client, Steven Seagal. Everybody loses face. That's when Corso files the lawsuit. And so that's the beginning of, oh, you're all disinformation people, you're all this, you're all that. And, and it had to do with an attempt to, first it was, a, it was, it was um, a case of misrepresentation on their part. And it was a case basically to take rights away that, that, you know, even if they felt that the person who bought the rights and it wasn't, I didn't buy them, it was a motion picture company, now had them, um, it was dishonest in what they did. Fine, there were a whole bunch of ways to approach it and they would have probably prevailed had they approached it the right way, but they didn't. And so literally they handed over this thing to, to the motion picture company and the movie never got made. I, I eventually made it as um, a reality show. And then the person who represented day after Roswell at that point, it wasn't me. Um, they made money on it. But, um, so, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was really a case of, of like botched here, botched there, botched there. Now it's sitting in some English version on the web uh, as an ebook and um, of course, it's different from the day after Roswell. It was a manipulated manuscript after the fact. It was a, it was, that manuscript was reverse engineered from the day after Roswell. <laughs> was anything else reverse engineered from Roswell, I've, I think? I, I have no idea. I mean, I mean all you, I'm saying... You, looking back, what do you make of the Corso story? Do you, is there any part anybody of who, any, Anybody who wants to get a snapshot of Phil Corso when he was doing what he said he was doing, Okay. If you want a snapshot of that person, go to his FBI file, public domain. Go to just do a FOIA request. What, what, is, what will we see? Yeah, an amazing portrait of somebody who was thoroughly disliked by the FBI for a whole bunch of reasons. Hmm. I mean, it was, it's astounding. Now, I saw this. I heard about this when he was still alive. Of course, you can't get an FBI file on a living person. So, I mean, they wouldn't give me the FBI file, right? But other people had knowledge of it all the way back into the 1970s. And I went to the movie company and I said, this is what you're getting yourself into. Why I mean, didn't they like at, him? What, what, I, I don't he was he was uh, hooked up with some of these really wacky people. This guy Golanowski, who claimed he was the living heir of um, Czar Nicholas, the guy was a nut. Uh, he was in some extreme right wing group called the Shiksini Knights of Malta. Um, there's a whole traffic of him. He was in all kinds of lawsuits. I mean, he was. I mean, he sued Drew Pearson. He sued Emanuel Seller. I mean, anybody he thought was a liberal, um, he sued. He, he, he basically made Rush Limbaugh look like Joseph Stalin. I mean, I got to tell you. And um, let me ask you this. I, let me let me ask you this question. If you weren't in UFOs anymore and you were just purely the sort of co-author of that book with him, would you feel more comfortable looking back and saying, eh, I don't know that I believe what we wrote? Do you feel that you're no, I mean, in saying look, that because you're in UFOs I, still? I think the honest thing to say is there is not, again, looking at this thing honestly, when you are hired as an agent, and I still represent the book, when you are hired as an agent, 
and this you learn this at day one, you learn this in law school, your first and highest responsibility, it doesn't have to be a talent agent or a literary agent, it's any real estate agent, your first and highest responsibility as a matter of law is to your client. It's not something you can debate. Literally, if you feel you can't uphold that, leave. Okay, resign. If you can't uphold it. Your first and highest responsibility is to the client. Now, my client wasn't Corso. My client was the motion picture company. But still, even residually, your first and highest duty is to the, the, uh, the product of that relationship, and that is to the book. Now, I said it then, and I'll say I, I've said it over and over again. I have no firsthand knowledge that anything that Corso said he did, he did. I only have kind of circumstantial knowledge that certain, and I guess the best thing to talk about is the um, night fishing goggles, is that before Arthur Trudeau and Army R&D, there were no night vision goggles. There was no, the kind we have now. There was night vision at the end of World War II. The British had it. The Germans had it. They had versions of night vision. Um, it only came to be in around 1961-62, right in the area where Corso was working. And Corso wrote probably one of the most detailed descriptions of night vision goggles. And sure enough, if you go to the history of night vision at Fort Belvoir, which is where night vision goggles were developed, there they give Arthur Trudeau, Corso's boss at Army R&D, the title of the father of night vision. Now, does that mean it came from the inner eye of an alien? Of course not. Does it mean that somehow Corso's records are there as deputy director of, uh, as the chief of foreign technology division? He says he went black after a month and became a deputy director under, uh, under Trudeau. I take, him, I take it as his word. Um, I don't say anything to the contrary. If, if that's the case, then Corso would have been directly involved with getting the budget and handling the budget for night vision goggles. Again, whether it came from the crash at Roswell, the alien autopsy, or whatever autopsy was done at Walter Reed, whether that was done that way, I can't tell you, because I don't, I don't know. I can only tell you that circumstantially, and circumstantially does not mean causality, it just means circumstantially. The two line up, they're, they're, they're as congruent as a pair of congruent triangles. And that's the one thing that I can put my foot down and say with certainty, I've seen all the documents when we were doing the book, and yeah, that lines up. Now, does that mean that fiber optics is, lines up? Uh, um, I do know for a fact that there's a general misconception still about the book after all these years, um, after 15 years, that, oh, Everybody was inventing these things before, before Corso went to Army R&D, you know, and that was the big argument in, in, in uh, the skeptic argument in uh, the, the, the Day After Roswell documentary. Well, you know, the Army was working on lasers. Uh, Bell had the transistor. Um, Bell was working on fiber optics. 
And that's exactly what the book says. And this is, you know, I would get frustrated with this, but now I'm not. We actually said in the book that the technology went to places where they were already working on the technology, but either were hitting stone walls, i.e. the transistor, which magically gets developed in, in, in 1948 uh, after over 10 years of failure, or, um, and that was transformative device, um, or fiber optics um, that's magically developed. And so all these things do suddenly in the middle 1960s after literally the integrated circuit and everything else hits IBM, there's this explosion of mini computers around 1965, 66. Okay. Um, so, uh, and, I, and I remember being at computer labs in 65, 66 and seeing, literally seeing, seeing, you know, when they brought in the first IBM 360 and it was not this room, it was not this, it was, wasn't a tabletop computer, but it certainly was smaller than the computers that there were in 1960, uh, 1962 when I was first looking at these things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I, so I, so I, so I saw this. So circumstantially, the stuff lines up, whether, it came from the crash at Roswell or not. I wasn't there. And of course I said, if you're not there, you didn't know. And he's right. If you weren't there, you wouldn't know. Okay. Uh, well, let me in our, well, you've actually gone over with me. So thanks for staying with me on this. Uh, but let me ask you about one more thing. Um, of course you and I, we did the big, um, Jacobs issue. And then that turned into sort of the Hopkins sidebar issue of UFO magazine. Right. Um, do you think we did anything there? I mean, that will have a lasting effect or was it just a, a blip in the radar and a pain in the ass? Well, uh, first of all, um, some of these things are kind of long-term. So that's like saying that would like be saying in 1985, do car phones, mobile phones cause cancer? Right. And you really don't know until 2005 to 2010 that microwave cell phone devices. Now it's the biggest thing, you know, right. New medical alerts now for cell phones. So which I'm not on. So um, so that's the big alert. So, you know, this really has been a blip on the radar over what? Six, seven months. It really hasn't been that long. So the thing is, you don't know. I know, and of course, Emma's website has been up for a while, and I know from ongoing conversations with David Jacobs, not recently, ongoing conversations with David Jacobs, uh, he was furious at me and the magazine, how dare we print anything uh, about Emma Woods, that, um, you know, I mean, a lawsuit was like, what if I sue? I think, do it, you know? Ask your lawyer what New York, uh, what, uh, what New York Times v. Sullivan means. And, um, you know, go ahead. Because once I said, once you file a lawsuit about this, immediately those tapes go into evidence. Do you want those tapes in evidence? He said, well, they're all out of context. Do you want those tapes in evidence? I actually said to him over the phone, do you want a federal, because it would be in federal court, because if he's filing for a lot of money, it would get remanded because she's not a citizen. Even in state court, do you want a judge hearing you ask for Emma 
to send you her unwashed underpants. Tell me you want to, I want to, I, 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 you know, tell me you want a judge to hear that tape. You want a jury to hear that tape. Tell me you want her lawyer to ask you, do you have a PhD in psychology? Uh, is there a licensing requirement in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to practice uh, clinical psychology? Are you, do you have the license? Are you certified as a, a therapist in the state of Pennsylvania? Are you certified as a hypnotherapist in the state of Pennsylvania? Do you have an MD? Are you a psychiatrist? How much residency have you had? At some point, your lawyer would say, ask and answer. Stop already. But it would make an impact on a judge or a jury that you have absolutely no legal qualifications to say to somebody, you have multiple personality disorder while that person is under hypnosis and say she needs to be medicated to go see a doctor. None whatsoever, yet you're doing it. Do you know that practicing medicine in the state of Pennsylvania without a medical license is a criminal offense? I said, do you want that in court? And he was like, no. He said, fine. That's why there's not going to be a lawsuit. Hmm. Uh, so have you gotten any feedback since the articles? Uh, oh, I, I God. Mean, besides from, you know, Hopkins Jacobs, but as far no, as... No, no, I mean, I got, I got, you know, people were screaming at me. How dare you? How dare you? Every single skeptic, every single debunker will now use UFO magazine to beat the abduction community over the head. And I'm saying, well, if the abduction community has to rely on hypnotic regression to come up with these crazy stories... Then, I mean, if you've got people telling people to send them underpants under hypnosis, maybe the abduction community needs to get beaten up by skeptics. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, when you go over the line, I'm not saying that all abduction is wrong. I mean, I think the Betty and Bonnie Hill story, at least, you know, Travis Walton, Betty and Bonnie, I mean, those stories hold up over all kinds of scrutiny. I'm not arguing that. I mean, there, there is a core group of um, UFO incidents and stories that I, think, that I think hold up against any skeptic. They can drop a nuke on it, and these things will still be there millions of years later after the nuke stuff disappears, dissipates, right? I think Betty and Barney Hill. I think Travis Walton. I think the Paul Trent McMinnville pictures. I think even the Ed Walters story. I think that um, uh, Rex Heflin. I think James McDonald. I think all of the Bent Waters will hold up. I think all these things will hold up. Okay? Uh, Cosford will hold up. The Belgian Triangle will hold up. Hudson Valley sightings will hold up. All of these will hold up. Roswell will, of course, hold up. The thing is, there are other stories. There are other activities. I mean, I would, I mean, you've no idea what I had to sit through on UFO hunters. They would drag this stuff out. This one couple, it was in season three episode and Pat and I are sitting there and literally this couple is allegedly under hypnosis. He had no idea. We, we never, we just saw videos. We spoke to them and it is the Betty and Barney Hill story retold. Even down to, oh, they're putting something over my groin. Oh, it's hurting so much. And I'm going, hey, you know, I said it on camera. We heard this before. What the hell is going? What are you trying to do? And then the, the therapist is and actually says, and what did the alien tell you next? Thank you. Right? Then, then the husband, while the wife is under hypnosis saying, and, and don't forget, honey, what the alien said to you. I mean, 
you know, and so you hear that, right? And then literally, you will have all the abduction enthusiasts glom on to them, right? The newest abduction case. There are real cases of anomalous encounters that get lost in the fog of crazy stuff. And I'm not saying that David Jacobs is crazy. I'm saying that that literally he, with Emma, at the very least, I don't know what was driving him, or if I do, I'm sorry, I'm not going to say it on the air, but I don't know what was driving him. But clearly, he broke out of his own pattern, which was only working through therapists. And um, basically, I think, saw something there, maybe his book, floating away, and that was that was an issue. And, and you just listen to the tapes. I mean, just listen to them back and forth on the tapes. Right. Uh, well, maybe we should leave it there. Although, I want to ask you one question now that you've you've brought this stuff up about UFO hunters, but I don't want you to feel ambushed by it. But here's something that people ask uh, all the time on the forum. Uh, anytime we have you on, they say, why don't you ask him about the time that he told somebody on his show that he was a hybrid? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't feel ambushed. A, that got us a second season. I mean, not to be crass, but uh, it did. <laughs> the, um, see, it, I didn't do it for that reason, by the way. It, it just happened. See, what happened was this. In that episode, you will see a long shot. You know what a long shot is. A long shot of Terrell Copeland and me. Okay, and we're talking. Now, in that conversation, which is, by the way, not really that recorded, it, you'll see there are cuts. First, the disclaimer is this. When you see UFO hunters, you are seeing something like 46 minutes of airtime from 30 hours of video. Okay, so... Um, you know, like any other politician, you've taken it out of context. It was, indeed, there was a long conversation with Terrell Copeland. And um, this statement was a part of that conversation. They, they, uh, they had to cut it. But in the, that long shot, which goes on, in reality, that was a long interview for a long, long time. Terrell was telling me privately about these encounters he was having. And he was very nervous about them and wanted to know what I thought privately about them. And so I told him, I said, look, you're being obviously either trained or initiated or it could be disinformation, it could be something, but whatever it is, you're being trained for something. And he says, look, I was discharged from the Marines because I had an unknown blood disability. It was an unknown blood disability. He says, well... I had a disability. They, they couldn't explain why I had it. So that's why I said it was unknown. I said, well, you know, so all these things are coming together, right? At least coming up with a pattern. So when we're talking, the fact that Terrell Copeland was born dead, he was a blue baby and was revitalized. And it was like a miracle that he was revitalized. Okay. That was one that you didn't see on television. Two, that his grandmother called him the devil's child. You didn't see that on TV because he was always psychic. 
He would know things. He really made his grandmother crazy. Three, when he was a baby and he could still do this, he would say, the phone's going to ring its grandma. So he was almost an indigo child is my point. Then hearing about this woman coming in and she's, and it was a woman, by the way, uh, training him and, and, and having all kinds of mental abilities that he could, he could communicate with her without speaking and she with him without speaking. And so, um, that's why the, the longer buildup to that was, have you ever thought, had it ever crossed your mind, given your abilities, given your blood disorder, given the strange things that have happened from the time you were an infant, you might be a hybrid. And, and that was the line on TV. And of course, Pat Oskert was set, telling me, don't go there. Don't, this is all not on camera. Don't go there. Don't go there. That's why he said, Bill, you can't say that. Mm-hmm. Then, then when we got outside, the producer said, Pat, if you're irritated by this, tell him. And so that's what happened. Well, in the cut, now you almost didn't see that scene. In the cut, we had a new story guy, a new story producer, um, Stu Chate, I think his name was, Chaitin or Chate. Nice, n- nice guy. I mean, we got to be really friendly in the second. This in the first got really friendly in the second season, and um, that was about to go in the first edit. They were cutting that whole thing out, and Chate said, "Leave it in. Leave it in. I want that to go to the network." And the new exec producer for the network saw it, saw that, and he wanted, I mean, he's the person, you know, ice road truckers, porn stars, American pickers, the, these were, this was his idea of where History Channel would go as a network. He saw that scene and said, this show's renewed. Because that was something he wanted, that dispute on camera. Again, it was not something I'd set up at all. But the actual dispute part where, where Pat says that to you, that was sort of reshot then. That was, that was staged in a way. It wasn't staged insofar as Pat wasn't going to do anything. Pat really it had those staged. feelings, but it was like, let's, let's do this again. Yeah, Go. Pat, yeah. Pat was, it was like this. We're walking out of Terrell Copeland's house, and Pat's saying to me, why did you say that? You know, Pat and I are good friends. He said, why did you say that? I said, Pat, I just said what I felt. He says, for God's sakes, don't you understand? You know, you're telling this guy he's a hybrid. Where do you come off telling me he's a hybrid? How do you know he's a hybrid? And, the, and Alan Lagarde, who is the producer, said, save it for camera. Drag him on the camera. And, and we shot that scene. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so just in terms of you, I mean, you don't mind then being that guy because you know how that's going to be perceived and how reality shows make characters out of real people. So did you worry about that at all? Like, okay, no, they're going to make me not, that character who says those types of things. No, I mean, um, no. And in fact, on alien, on ancient aliens, um, which is why I'm saying legend and lore all the time. They will ask me, they will give me these really far out questions. And for this season, a lot of the far out questions really had conventional answers that I was able to um, present in a way that said, but 
the, the, the in this case, evolu- human evolutionary theory, to say that the people who write about evolution cannot give you an answer as to why it happened. I mean, you'll see this, I don't, again, it, I've not seen any edited versions of these, so I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But there's a long, long series of questions about human origins. That's one of the episodes. And in it is the evolution of human language, the evolution of human speech, the evolution of human thought, um, stuff like that. Um, what is the God helmet? And, you know, that kind of stuff. And so in those conversations with the producer of the episode, I was saying, you know, you're really in an area where um, nobody really knows the answers to the kinds of questions you're posing. I mean, and in fact, since I have a PhD in linguistics, the, the questions that they were posing were, had far more serious implications in terms of the real neurophysiology of um, the human neurological system than they realized. I mean, why is there human language and how did it come to be? Well, the fact is human language came to be, it was a long process that came to be because the human brain evolved into an asymmetrical dominant subordinate hemisphere linked by a bundle of neurons to just transmit messages back and forth. And we know this is happening because in Stone Age societies, you're seeing certain kinds of flint tools more worn on one side than the other, usually the right side, which meant that handedness is developing in human beings and handedness and language. Remember that classic, here's an example. If everyone saw the King's Speech, the movie The King's Speech, mm-hmm. okay, there is a scene in which Jeffrey Rush asks Colin Firth, were you originally left-handed and were you switched? And Colin Firth says yes. In speech pathology, that is the classic reason for a stutter. That's why I had my stutter. I was originally a lefty. Parents said it's a righty's world. They should Okay, righty's world. So they would schools and parents would force you to use your right hand. Well, in a true lefty, the seat of language sits on the right hemisphere. In a true righty, it sits on the left hemisphere. It's in a spot called Broca's brain. It sits on the left hemisphere. And so right-handed people are left hemisphere dominant. And left-handed people are right hemisphere in, 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 in true left-handed people, ambidextrous people. Um, the very ambidextrous also turn up with some speech problems and some cognition problems. And so handedness is literally developing in the human being along with language until there's a fully developed language is hardwired in the human brain. Okay. There are certain cases of aphasia or dysphasia where, um, or hyperphasia where, um, there are language disorders, but by and large, language is hardwired in the human brain. And so when they're asking questions about the origins of humanity and the development of language, my God, what you're talking about is, is, is like thousands of years, 50,000 years of development. And so what was the trigger for the development of human language? Was it simply that because we developed fire, 
we were able to cook food. Cooking food meant human beings no longer needed to use all of their points of articulation, their teeth, their gums, their tongue, their this, their that, their mandible for chewing raw meat and veggies. They could now cook their food, soften their food. Uh, their jaws became more flexible. Their mandible muscles were more flexible. Now they could have a greater range of articulation. Hence, language began. Okay, I mean, there are all these reasons. Did that happen automatically or were human beings, did we touch the obelisk? Were human beings seeded by some alien race, creating a race of kind of pre-linguistic hominids out of proto-hominids? And was that the genetic manipulation that took place? And so when we talk about genesis, was that the real genesis? So those are the issues that are coming up in this episode. So when you talk about the God helmet, you're again, I don't know if this is it or not. What you're talking about is the um, any what the God helmet does is through sound and through electrical stimulation on the cerebral cortex. It's a real thing. The God helmet. Human beings are able to see things. They feel a divine presence. They feel a spiritual manifestation taking place around them. Well, yeah. Because, because what's happening is the dominant subordinate relationship between the hemispheres is being changed through electrical stimulation. We know what happened in the 1950s when Wilder Penfield up in Canada was stimulating the cerebral cortexes of his patients and getting memories. We know that happened all the way back from Marcel Proust's um, Remembrance of Things Past when an olfactory sensation stimulates an, electro, um, um, an electrical message on top of the cord. And we know all this. Now, is this purely human? Is it extraterrestrial? Is it divine? How do you define it? Well, the fact is we have experiments that show, like the God Helmet, like Walter Penfield, his, his work, by the way, became, I'm okay, you're okay. That's that very famous you know, stuff from the, from the 70s. Then he killed himself, didn't he? What? He killed himself, yeah. Well, he was working for the CIA. That was part of MKUltra. So... Um, I'm going to let Believe that pass me. because we're, we're running out of time, so I don't know what that no, means. I, uh, uh, the guy that I uh, plug, 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 the guy that I wrote the book with, Suicidal Mass Murderers, the story of Cho Sung Hui at Virginia Tech, psychology book, he worked with David Cameron at McGill Medical School in the 1950s on MKUltra. That's how I know this stuff came out of there. Wow. An incredible story. Anyway... Where is the causality for this? So that was part of that whole episode. Hmm. But it shows you how it's going to be edited. We'll, we'll show you the direction it's going to go. Very good. Well, Bill Burns, thank you for your insights into the outer world of ufology and uh, the inner workings of the TV and writing part of it. I don't think a lot of there people you go. get to hear that. You're still doing future theater, right, with Nancy? We're still doing future theater. Well, we, I may have another radio show coming up soon. Um, we don't know yet. We're still in the early, early, early planning stages. Um, You're a busy uh, guy. Re, re, uh, uh, re, regarding the history of American intelligence collection. Oh, wow. Cloak and dagger stuff. So um, with a person who comes out of that world. And um, that may be a show coming up soon. And let's see. I finished uh, um, Suicidal Mass Murderers with uh, John Liebert, MD, and uh, I'm 
finishing, I hope, the manuscript uh, within the next few weeks for the Everything UFO Hunter book that is coming out from Adams, and then the first edition, the, 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 the first um, uh, volume of UFO Hunters, the series guide, comes out from Macmillan next year that I've got to finish up. Very cool. And, of course, UFO Magazine, next issue is on its way. Next issue is the presses are running, hits the post office Thursday, and out she goes. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you once again for coming on the program and giving us your wisdom. My pleasure. Someone you want me to do it? Sure. Uh, three, two, one. Go right ahead. This is Chris Balzano, and you're listening to Paratopia. One more time. So the Jeff. So the chair. Bill Burns, eh? Bill Burns. What did you think? What did you hear? What? How much of this did you hear? And what did you make of it? Um. Well, I mean, a, a lot of the beginning part, I, I kind of flitted around a little bit, but I did stop when um, we got to the Bentwaters and uh, Charles Halt and the Peniston stuff. And um, well, there it is, right? <laughs> I mean, there it is. Um, Halt said this was not part of the story. That the you know, uh, I can't remember the exact words that that Bill used. Maybe you can re- refresh my memory. But they were doing a lot of speaking together, and um, and this never came up. Correct? I mean, this is not. Yeah. This never came up. <laughs> it never came up, and Halt believes it's bullshit. I mean, I mean that's the short of it. Halt believes it's bullshit, and. I, I guess you can say, well, um, you know, whatever certain pundits he's talking about would get in somebody's head, that that's, you know, and sort of steer the conversation. I guess that's possible, and, and I've seen examples of that, I'm sure, but, I mean, this guy had to go the extra mile and write down these ones and zeros. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I said on the show, this ain't no unconscious you know, being overly influenced by somebody who's trying to manage your case, yeah. this is your in on it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I found interesting. Um, I, it wasn't too long after our uh, our discussion where where we basically dissected uh, Angela Joyner's interview on Facebook. Uh, Jim's my friend on Facebook. Much like one of our message boards patrons, uh, he's my friend on Facebook too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if y'all read, friend. and if you all read the thread uh, on that particular show, you'll you'll know why we're laughing about that. But anyway, uh, I was reading that about a couple days after maybe we had done that, and, um, and and what I found really interesting was there were some posts from Jim that were talking directly to. Um, John Burroughs. And these almost reminded me of what you would send in a a one-on-one message to somebody rather than in a public place like that where everyone can read your comments. And, um, and they would go back and forth – and I, you know, you, you'd have to go back if you're if you're friends with him on Facebook. You'd have to go back and look and see around that timeline. But I seem to remember something on there about um, 
well, we're just going to do this, uh, John, and and blah blah blah, and uh, people can do what they want with it or not. And uh, but we have to, we got a lot of work to do yet. You know, would you agree with that? Would you think John's like, yeah, yeah, I think we, you know, we should do the both. I mean, it's this real back and forth that seemed to be kind of like I don't know, two people standing in a crowded room shouting at the top of their lungs, hoping someone's listening in. Yeah, like an it, orchestrated. It almost seemed that way. I mean, I mean, certainly, I I don't know. Uh, exactly everything that was being said because i just frankly i don't i just don't care um i've pretty much made my peace with it and said uh, okay I'm, I'm done but um yeah it did seem to be that kind of like let's have a discussion in public and 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 kind of uh and there were other people commenting in but the, it was kind of like those comments weren't even being i don't think answered it was very cryptic and uh uh, and I saw one where Angelia said something about, uh, are you still working with Linda? And I, I don't know that he ever answered it. I lost track of it after that because they moved so quickly on my Facebook. But, um, you know, it was it was, uh, it was just an awkward place to have a seeming one-on-one dialogue like that. And that struck me, again, very, very strange and, and not exactly um, kosher, <laughs> you know, like something didn't seem right about that. So, um, it, it, I mean, this doesn't surprise me that Halt uh, never heard anything about it because, frankly, if you go back on the you know the Unsolved Mysteries episode, which is where a lot of people heard about this for the first time, it ain't on there either. Um, so I'm not surprised. I mean, you know, I think I think at this point, uh, the more that they have to say about the binary code, the worse it's going to be uh, on that case, and that's unfortunate because you know there may be something to it, but. Uh, if you ask my opinion on what that case is right now, I think they were drugged. I think I think there may have been props. I think there may have been something like that, but I think it was possibly psychotronic weapons testing. It could have been, uh, or it's it's the nature of the myth making. You know, it's the nature of embellishment uh, to kind of hold on to the uh, or to be the next Roswell. I mean, I don't know. Um, anybody's guess. We just don't know. You know, the one thing that, that does bother me the most about it is something that, uh, David Clark brought up on the show, which was, you know, you've got reenactments of this everywhere and and it shows a fairly large group of guys. I mean, they've got the the mobile lighting out and, you know, and this, this takes not a small group of people. And, um, and kind of the way it's always been presented to me is that there were a lot of people involved in this, a lot of lot more witnesses than – but we only hear from so many of them. I mean very few of them uh, are really – I mean Burroughs, Penniston, Charles Halt, and um, – and, and you know, I mean it's, it's a small number of people. So where are all these other people who have something to say about it that were there? I, I would love for anyone to contact us and tell us you know, that they were there and – Here's what I know, or here's what I saw. So um, uh, it, it's a, it's a shame. It's a shame when uh, something like this just kind of falls by the wayside when you really thought this was one of the better cases that was out there. So did anyway, you a, did you get a chance to listen to any of the Corso stuff? No, I didn't. Fill me in on that. Like, uh, you know, give me the for instance of what Bill was saying. It sounds like from Corso's FBI file that he was involved in a bunch of shady sort of outlandish shit. 
Oh, really? Okay. And Burns sort of very quickly threw in he, something to the, along the lines of, you know, of course it was not the most trustable guy in the world or or something like that. Oh, okay. Was, was, <laughs> yeah, which – Wow. Uh, so, I mean – does that mean he's reevaluated his uh Well, his I don't book? know. I mean, I asked him. I asked him, you know, if you weren't involved in this UFO stuff, uh, do you think that you would feel more comfortable just out and out saying you don't believe what you wrote in that book? <laughs> you, you don't believe yeah. any of the Corso stuff? And he said that there are some things that do jive with what he was saying in terms of, um, like, night vision goggles and okay. and that sort of thing. Not that, that Not that the way that they came about proves of course that they were reverse engineered from alien technology but that um you know it could <laughs> it could still go that way you know can't speak to everything but there are a couple of things that yeah he feels like are you know a possibility so i you know i don't know my yeah. my gut feeling is he he doesn't really believe most of it okay um okay. well i know the fiber optics was one of the big Big ones on there that um, were said to have been gotten from Roswell or gleaned from the crash and all of that. And, and, you know, any of you listeners can get on the Internet and Google fiber optics and the discovery and and literally see that the people that were involved with its discovery and its implementation and everything from communications to light, um, you know, pretty lights, (laughs) fiber optic curtains, all that. I mean, this has been around for a long time and it's been worked on by a lot of people. So I, I think it's pretty well documented where it came from, how it was developed, why it was developed, and how it was you know utilized in all these number of different ways, and the discoveries that they made from it. So that part never held any water for me. Um, you know, some of the others like the integrated circuit and all that. Again, I think you could trace those things back pretty easily. Well, uh, you can trace some of them. I mean, I think Bill's point is, yeah, you can trace them to, for instance, Bell Labs. Uh-huh. But that's where Corso said they gave the technology to. Okay. So, you know, what do you do with that? I mean, unless you can trace it back to the actual person who invented Individuals, it. yeah. That's the thing. I mean, and I think, I think well, for fiber optics, I know you can. But um, integrated circuit, I don't know. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure if, if you looked, you probably could find the people who were. But, I, you know, on another note, I'm, not, I'm still not certain what, uh, you know, we talked about the, the manuscript that Paula Harris's. Italian friends put out as, uh, you know, the real day after Roswell book, you know, sort of his, his un expurgated version, um, okay. which it's still confusing to me what they actually put out because it sounds like from, you know, I remember when they put it out and everybody said, well, then why did Burns censor so much of Corso's material for this book? Okay. Um, and what Burns is saying is that there was no book, that he censored. There were notes, you know, that the original manuscript was a bunch of notes that Burns essentially turned into a book, made look like a book. I see. Okay. Um, but yet here's this manuscript or whatever that Corso uh, copy got a copyright on, because, and essentially he was pissed off about some movie deal that went south. Okay. Um, and then turned into a diva and said, why doesn't anyone listen to me? Why doesn't anyone look at what I actually wrote? It's like, well, but you didn't write anything. You wrote some notes, and a lot of that shit has nothing to do with Roswell, and this is the Roswell <sighs> story, so right. can't use everything, dude. Right. Uh, and then Paul Harrison Company gets their hands on it and bills it as the uncensored version. 
But I'm still not clear on, I mean, what what he has there is not just notes. So somebody had to have turned that original manuscript into a book. It's not clear. I mean, he explained it, and it's still not clear to me what that book actually is. Is it just the notes that somebody worked into a book that partly contains the day after Roswell. I mean, essentially we contain <laughs> the day after Roswell book <laughs> right. and more, which is why they had to take it down because uh-huh. Simon and Schuster or whoever published it, uh, you know, sued them or threatened gotcha. to. Okay. Um, so, uh, but so I don't know. I, I, I haven't read that book. I, I'd read bits and pieces of it online. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Wow. It just seems like, it just seems like a giant legal mess and, and I, I'm not, I'm not sure why Bill isn't clear on what exactly that book is, because I don't think anyone listening to this interview can make the argument that Bill was clear, and I just don't understand what he was saying. Okay. I mean, because he said he hadn't read it, he hadn't read what was published, but he had read bits and pieces that were published in English, okay. uh, and but that what he had seen originally was notes and wasn't a, a huge manuscript, and so this doesn't represent those original notes, but then he sort of turns around and says they do. I, I don't know. I, I, if anyone huh. out there understood what the fuck he was trying to tell me, <laughs> please, please write to me. Cause I'd love to know how yeah. that all shakes out. I mean, is it as simple as there was this larger book that, that either bill or, uh, you know, other people at the book publishers, um, you know, as you do, you weed it down into its finest element. You go, okay, this is the story. Boom. There's your book. I mean, that's right. just natural. That's that. There ain't no hanky-panky there. Um, or is it a completely different animal? Because to hear Bill tell it, it's like he had a bunch of loose notes that he formed into a book to try to make coherent sense out of. Um, so, you know, he told the story of Roswell out of that and not um, the story of Corso. Okay. Okay. Well. But then, but then turns <sighs> around and sort of makes it sound like that didn't really happen. I don't know. It's almost like he wants to have his cake and eat it too. It's like he wants to sort of make the case that he, uh, that he really crafted this book. But then I think he sort of knows how that sounds to say, well, I crafted this book and I, and I, you know, honed in on Roswell and that's what it is. I mean, but I don't think he should have to talk out of both sides of his mouth if, if that's what he was doing. Cause I don't see anything wrong with, taking that part of this man's story and making that into a book. What's wrong with that? And then for Corso to turn around and go, you know, why didn't you include this element and this element and that element? Well, because then the book would be 8 million pages long, dude, and it's not about that. Right. He wanted his memoirs, essentially, is what you're saying. Well, or did he? Because it sounds like, again, from what Bill's saying, the thing that made him want his memoirs was – not that he was upset with how Bill wrote the book, but that that some film deal had gone south. Oh, okay. Uh, and and all of that had sort of pissed him off. Hmm. And then, of course, here here's another example of handlers, right? Which is what Halt was talking about with Peniston. Mm-hmm. You've got these pundit handler types, uh, in this case, Paul Harris and, and her friends, who come in and listen to Corso and sweet talk him and go, oh, you know, what an evil man Bill is and, and all of this and you know, yeah. just give us the material. We'll publish it. We'll we'll publish your real story. You know. Yeah. And meanwhile, these fucking geniuses, essentially, in publishing his quote unquote real story, end up publishing the day after Roswell, <laughs> which you just can't do. You fucking idiots. <laughs> oh, I love this field. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you and me both. I, I mean, I mean, here's the thing. 
We're talking about Roswell. <laughs> so, I mean, really, um, just don't care. Uh, you know, and, and that includes, I don't care about any story when it comes to Roswell, and that includes the idea that it was Russian midgets, um, <laughs> you know, uh, concocted by uh, Dr. Joseph Mengele. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not super into Roswell. I think it's a lost cause and a big mess because there are so many conflicting stories and so many parts of it has fallen apart over the years. And, um, and even going back to the original, you know, the original story, the original baseline idea, um, you know, that looks indistinguishable from what we see today. And so it is. It, it perfectly falls in line with with uh, myth making and 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 the, the you know the tall tales, the uh, the fables, you know that we all learn in school about Paul Bunyan and uh, all that sort of thing. I mean, it's the same thing. Over time, these things just get bombastically overstated and retold, and it becomes a myth. And that's to me is exactly what Roswell is. I mean, will we ever know what it really was? Who knows? Maybe one day they'll tell us what it really was. Um, uh, you know, long after the people who may have been affected by something that landed or crashed there, uh, that belonged to us are gone. And, uh, uh, and maybe that, you know, certain figureheads in government are gone. Uh, maybe at that point they'll, they'll release and say, Hey guys, guess what? It was actually, a a top secret project that we were working on and uh it crashed and uh and and in doing that it potentially poisoned a lot of people i mean what if what if that's all it was well see i i have a hard time buying any of that type of stuff because there's no reason to keep that a secret now especially after um was it hillary clinton who mm -hmm. publicly apologized for the nuclear testing on uh, you know, minorities and mentally handicapped people. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so yeah. if they can apologize and admit to well, that. Well, and the atom bomb test too. I mean, same thing. You know, I'm thinking it might have been something a whole lot worse than that. <laughs> you know, of which stuff I don't even want to think about. But I mean, you know, there could be a million different really heinous things that could have been going on there if anything really was going on at all. Uh, I just don't know. I mean, it's a muddled, mucky mess. And I don't think that any researcher at all is going to be able to do anything with it at this point. It's a, it's a, and it's a so old at this point. I mean, don't we have a handful of much better cases, much better documented? Um, I mean, we had one with <laughs> Bent Waters. Look what happened there. <laughs> so you know, I don't know. It's um, I, I don't care enough to worry about who wrote what in what context in whose story or whose memoir. Uh, because if, if it's all coming down to the base point of Roswell, I just, you know, I, I have no interest in that because I just don't, I don't feel there's anything there to be, to be gained. Um, I just don't, I don't see anything there to be gained. Uh, and I think if there was, and I think if you could pull something out of it, uh, that was, I don't know, uh, a revelation of some sort, it probably wouldn't have much to do with, uh, spacemen or anything like that. It may be something completely different that maybe we don't even want to know about. And at that point, you're a pariah again. So, I mean, anytime you speak out against Roswell or you say, I mean, I get hate mail every time I say I hate Roswell. But I'll say it again. I hate Roswell. But, 
I, I mean, in the end, that's that's the answer. I mean, everybody will write me, I know, again and say, well, you've got to read this book by so-and-so and you've got to read Stan Friedman's original book and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know. I know. But, you know, I just <laughs> – you know what, guys? I just, I just don't give a fuck. It's a mess. It's a mess from the get-go. Kevin Randall, bless his soul, has been trying for years to get at it. And every time you turn around, somebody else is falling apart as a witness. I mean, how many times are we going to go through this before we just turn our backs on it and get onto something fucking new? I mean, come on. It's gone. Let it go. It may have been, you know, the cornerstone for a while, but uh, now it's the cornerstone we should reject uh, and kind of move on. You know, we've got a couple of dozen better cases than that to to be looked at that, that actually have a lot of very interesting elements in it um, based on what we've been – What I mean based alone on what you and I have talked about on the show with marginality and anti-structure and all that sort of thing. There's a lot of other stuff to look at. I say Roswell is a dead issue. That's just me. Very good. I mean let me ask you this first before we do anything else. I mean before we wrap up here. Uh, you, what do you – when you think of Roswell, what do you – what is your thought? I just don't know. I mean, I used to think I knew. <laughs> yeah, well, we all thought we knew at one point, yeah. Uh, I think that if it were... I, I mean, again, I, I think I've said this before in the show, but it makes sense to me that if there was something alienish about it, that it was a purposely crashed thing to see what we would do with it. Uh-huh, yeah. Of course, it also makes sense to me that it probably disintegrated in the way that, that you say, you know, this stuff probably can't exist here for long. Right. It makes sense to me that if they stored it somewhere, it disappeared. <laughs> it's not there, yeah. Uh, all of that makes sense to me. I mean, I just... It doesn't make sense to me that the Air Force has just made up story after story for decades and decades, including Case Closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you can always fall back on, well, they just keep doing that so that they can keep having a cover story for... So we keep believing else. in aliens so that when they do their deep black budget projects, you know, we'll, we'll attribute it to aliens or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, they're trying to capture spies or whatever. But it seems like such an old, dead case that there's no reason to use it for those things anymore. Right. On the other hand, if they were to just come out and say, yeah, there's nothing to this, who's going to believe them? <laughs> I mean, they've been doing that, right? And nobody believes them. So... Even well, if they I mean, were they, lying they, about it, yeah. about the way they were doing it, if the, the essential truth is nothing happened, who would believe them? Well, I mean, they've given two kind of different stories. You know, one time it's, it's a weather balloon. And then, well, no, it's actually a top-secret listening balloon. And then couple that with dummy drops right. at your bodies, you know. I mean, there's definitely a cover-up, right? There's definitely so something that up? they're. I there's think the there's question. something definitely that they're hiding. Yes. And yes. I, and there's no. There's nothing ab- about what they could be hiding that makes sense to me, except for something otherworldly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, again, I just go back to what we have apologized for. I go back to what we do know. We've done <laughs> mm-hmm. the horrors of war, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, including funneling Nazi scientists here. I mean, everybody knows these things. Oh yeah. So, I mean, if we can funnel Nazi scientists here while at the same time supporting Israel left and right, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're a nation of open contradictions is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And people seem to be okay with them. So, uh, 
I, I don't I don't see what horrible thing like even even you know midget Russian whatevers right yeah <laughs> you know whatever that dumb theory is uh, the David Lynch <laughs> theory let's call it the David Lynch theory the log lady and the midget say they just drop the log lady and the midget I mean we could hear that at this point there's no reason not to tell that story mm-hmm. uh, especially if you want to get rid of it if if the Air Force truly does want to dump Roswell and say case closed then tell the real story. Well, there's only one reason I can think of that you couldn't tell that story, because what would be more horrible than experimenting on mentally challenged people, black people, uh, in any other... Or Japanese, uh, and you know, leftover Japanese internment camp folks. What would be worse than that? What would be worse than, you know, exploding a bomb and just having people sit there and go, take it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Put your sunglasses on. They'll help. And then I go back to, you know, if Streber, what was his uncle, was Arthur Exxon, is that right? I think you're right. And he told him, you know, something happened there. I mean, his book, Majestic, I thought really was it. Like, as far as I'm concerned, that that little work of fiction, that's Mm. probably what happened, (laughs) Mm. if anything happened at all. And then I get back to that caveat, because so much of it has been destroyed by, like you say, bad witnesses and just, you know, nothingness. Yeah. The, the echo chamber that has become Roswell. Um, right. I mean, who knows? You're right. It's become a circus. It's become its own myth. And as we're seeing with Bent Waters, you know, we'll never know. Well, <laughs> you'll never know what I think. Uh, well, I mean, it's. I mean, when we talk about cottage industry, <laughs> Roswell is like the poster child for that. I mean, that Roswell museum that they were supposed to be moving was going into a multi-million dollar building. I mean that says enough for me right there. I mean that's that's reason enough to, uh, you know, to to hang on and perpetuate it for years to come. And again, referring back to David Clark, you know, in ten more years or twenty more years, Roswell will probably look nothing like what it looks like right now. You know, Carrie and Schmidt, their stuff, Stanton stuff, Kevin stuff. I mean, I think it's all going to evolve and keep evolving. Unless something comes by to take its place, in which I think the good candidate for that would be Randlesham at this point. You know what it you is? It's, uh, it's like Ancient Aliens. I saw another episode of Ancient Aliens since this interview. Okay. And um, as I said to you on the phone, I, these ancient astronaut theorists, Giorgio Sukalos, out of his mind. <laughs> or, or just completely stupid. One of the two. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'll go on the record with that. I have no problem with that. And I and I met Giorgio. You know, he came and spoke at my thing, and you know, uh, he was a nice enough guy. But y- you see, you see him on TV just going, "Everything's an alien." <laughs> you know, clearly, <laughs> like everything is aliens talking to us. It's like, shut up. Uh. <laughs> but maybe there's something to it, in spite of these ancient alien theorists. You know, and so it is with Roswell. Maybe there's something to it, in spite of the researchers and all of the people telling us that there is something to it and them all being wrong or bad researchers or, you know, however that shakes out. Right. In spite of, (laughs) in spite of them, it still could be true, you know? Yeah. But again, at this point in the game, even if someone sat down from point A and drew the line clearly to point B, it would just be another thing heaped upon the pile of shit that is Roswell. You know what I mean? Like, even if that piece were there, if there's some kind of missing thing that we don't know about and this person would uncover it, likely it would fall into that category of being just another book on a revelationary tale of Roswell. 
And so how, how important can it be? I mean, at this point, we can't take it seriously. If that's why I say it needs to be dropped and we need to move on to other stuff is because this stuff is just not – no matter what comes out at this point, you know, the dinner table has been set with clay you know, uh, uh, utensils and plates and to put food on them just melts them. So everything is just you know, is dead from the minute it enters the pool. So that's kind of how I feel about it. It's not that there isn't anything there. There might be something interesting. I'm willing to entertain that thought. But at this point, I can't be bothered because there's just so much shit to wade through. Well, and also, I mean, it gets back to um, intention here to me, too. It's like, you know, I was watching this Ray Kurzweil documentary where, you know, Ray Kurzweil, of course, uh, there's a singularity coming, a technological singularity where it's all of this futurist nonsense is going to be out of our control and and then voila, we're going to be, be able to load our consciousness into machines and robots will take over the world and all that. Okay. <laughs> um, but in, in part of that is in saying um, – you know, that he wants to put nanobots in our bloodstream. You know, eventually, some point in the near future, we're going to have nanobot technology in our bloodstream. Mm-hmm. Nanobot, so, okay, so if that's true, if if we're on the path to that type of technology, why would alleged aliens need giant implants to stick up your nose between your toes, wherever? <laughs> exactly. And And so it goes to Roswell. It's like, why would... Anything crash? <laughs> why? Yeah. Why would the craft be manned in the first place? Mm-hmm. Uh, it just well, you it see, Jerry. Make sense unless <laughs> unless it's on purpose, unless it's by design, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or unless it's some sort of you know tulpa that you know maybe uh, let's get as abstract and strange as possible. Let's go back to Ted Rose plasma. Uh, creatures, you know, maybe there is some sort of plasma that the universe creates that is sort of as Streber says. Let's let's tie all of this together in one giant X file. You ready? Okay. You've got Streber's modus operandi, which is this is what um, it, you know. This is what the force of evolution looks like when applied to the human mind, right? Okay. So that's what's at work, and it's working through plasma, which imitates. <laughs> Uh, our expectations. Uh-huh. And so our expectations exist for as long as plasma can keep that form. And it's consciousness just, Play-Doh. It's consciousness. Yeah. It's consciousness. Silly putty essentially. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's sort of telling us what's happening to us, like where society or where the human mind is going next, but it's doing so in a way that, uh, once you get there, you realize, oh, it couldn't have possibly been that way because that's so rudimentary and stupid. Like the implants and the abductions because doctors are doing medical tests and all that stuff, that Star Trek stuff, that all sounds from the past, you know, in the 80s, that all sounded like, yeah, that could be because that's where we're going. Right. But then once you get there, you realize, oh, no, that was the faux pas of people projecting into the future and then thinking that because you could project and um, imagine a future that, that that's how the future would actually look. But right. it doesn't actually look like that. It looks something like that. So, for instance, implants. There will be implants, but there'll be nanobots in your bloodstream. That'll be the implants. It won't be these outlandish giant implants. But the outlandish giant implants are what give us the sign that, oh, you know, we could be implanting 
things in our body that would have some sort of, you know, effect, some sort of symbiotic effect. Right. Does that make sense? So that there's some sort of like outrageous event that happens that we interpret as aliens, you know, implanting. Um, that's telling us that in the future, <laughs> we're going to implant ourselves with shit. Right. But it's not going to look anything like what we saw, but we won't know that until we get there. And until we get there, the alien stuff looks really futuristic. And then you get there and you go, wait a minute, that wasn't futuristic. Yeah. That's kind of silly. <laughs> right. Well, that's because it's it's being co-created by w- what we understand now and, you know. On the paranormal sense, it's all very abstract, as as the paranormal is abstract. So, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I mean, um, <laughs> strange times, Jeremy. Strange Indeed. times. Uh, you know, next week we should talk about um, your theory on Gulf Breeze if you want, because I feel like it sort of sure. ties into uh, what I was saying off the fucking top of my ass about plasma and tulpas and streber <laughs> and all that. Sure. Um, I think it's a better fleshed out sort of version of that. Um, okay. So let's do that. Well, Paratopia, uh, we blabbed on and on and on, and so we're going to make that uh, the midweek show, a midweek special, just for you subscribers. Um, but for now, I am Jeremy Vaney. And I'm the other guy. You're Jeff, Jeff Ritzman. You're Jeff Ritzman. We all know you're <laughs> Jeff Ritzman. And we are signing off at this... Properly edited, appointed slot in our conversation. Right. That's it. (laughs) All right. Goodbye. (laughs) Sweet dreams. Bye. Oh, and thanks, Bill. (laughs) My thanks once again to Bill Burns uh, of Bill Burns Incorporated. No, I I don't know. Of UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. Um, Once again, catch up with him at www.com ufomag.com subscribe, keep their magazine going watch him on TV, read his books do what you must Bill needs to eat no? (laughs) Bill gotta eat (laughs) alright, good night good night